0: Welcome to Music History Monday for July 4th, 2022. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is As American as Tarte au Pomme, celebrating the 4th with some real American music, or tampering with national property. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site, at patreon.com slash Music, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We mark the completion on July 4th, 1941, 81 years ago today, of Igor Stravinsky's reharmonization and orchestration of The Star-Spangled Banner. Stravinsky in America. In September of 1939, Igor Stravinsky, 1882 to 1971, and his longtime mistress, Vera de Brosset, 1889 to 1982, arrived in the United States from their home in Paris. The couple were married in Bedford, Massachusetts, six months later, on March 9, 1940. Stravinsky had come to the United States to spend the 1939-1940 academic year at Harvard University, where he was to occupy the Charles Eliot Norton Chair of Poetry and deliver six lectures on music that were that year's Charles Eliot Norton Lectures. By the time the academic year ended in June of 1940, the Stravinsky's, Igor and Vera, had no home to return to. Nazi Germany had occupied Paris on June 14th, and France surrendered to Germany eight days later, on June 22nd, 1940. The couple settled in Los Angeles in 1941 and bought a house at 1260 North Weatherly Drive, just above the Sunset Strip in Hollywood. Stravinsky and Vera would live there for the next 29 years until his final illness forced a move to New York City. For our information, Igor and Vera became American citizens in 1945. Their sponsor was Stravinsky's friend, the actor Edward G. Robinson. In Los Angeles and in America, Stravinsky was a star among stars, a big fish in a big pond. Having settled in LA, he made his fortune touring as a conductor of his own music. At the time, like so many American sporting events to this day, an orchestral concert in the United States began with a rendition of the national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner. At the time Stravinsky settled in the United States in 1940, The Star-Spangled Banner was the newly-minted National Anthem, having been officially designated the National Anthem of the United States by Congressional resolution on March 3, 1931. Rather predictably, Stravinsky didn't like any of the available orchestra arrangements of the Star-Spangled Banner, so in the great American spirit of DIY, when in doubt, do it yourself, he made his own arrangement, finishing it, coincidentally, on July 4th, 1941, 81 years ago today. Speaking strictly for myself, I can take or leave Stravinsky's arrangement. In an attempt to make the anthem more interesting, he changes the harmony on pretty much every beat, overwriting in the process and creating, what is to my ear, a rather clunky and ungainly arrangement. Most listeners won't be in the least bothered by what I'm talking about, with the exception of one harmony, a, it sticks out like a sore thumb, what's that doing there, B-flat dominant seventh chord, at one minute and thirty seconds of the linked performance. The mugshot that wasn't, and the controversy that is. So here's the story the story as it's been told for 80 years. On April 15th, 1940, Stravinsky presumably conducted his arrangement of the Star-Spangled Banner in a concert with the Boston Symphony Orchestra. The arrangement was met first by stony silence, then catcalls, and finally, a riot. Enter the Boston Police Department, members of which were reputed to have dragged Stravinsky from the podium, placed him under arrest, and trundled him off to police headquarters where the mug shot attached to this podcast was taken. Great story, huh? Famous Russian expat modernist composer tossed in the slammer for messing with the anthem. Except that none of this actually happened. Stravinsky didn't complete his arrangement until July 4, 1941, some 14 months after the purported mugshot was taken on April 15, 1940. There was no concert on April 15, 1940, and there is no mugshot. The photograph of Stravinsky bearing the date April 15, 1940, and the designation Boston Police is an ID photo, an official government photo issued by the Boston police for immigration purposes. The reason why the story of Stravinsky's arrest gained and has held such traction has to do with another incident that occurred in Boston with which it became conflated. Stravinsky did indeed conduct his arrangement of the Star Spangled Banner in Boston with the Boston Symphony Orchestra. On January 13, 1944, as was typically the case in Boston, the audience rose as one to sing along. But when they got to that B-flat dominant seventh chord, at one minute and thirty seconds of the linked performance, they faltered. According to an account circulated by the Associated Press, quote, but soon, the odd, somewhat dissonant harmonies of the 61-year-old composer's arrangement became evident. Eyebrows lifted, voices faltered, and before the close, practically everyone gave up even trying to accompany, that is, to sing, the score, unquote. In 1959, Stravinsky described what happened the following day, on January 14, 1944, quote, The next day, just before the second concert, a police commissioner appeared in my dressing room and informed me of a Massachusetts law forbidding any tampering with national property. He said that policemen had already been instructed to remove my arrangement from the music stands. I argued, but to no avail. I do not know if my version has been performed in Boston since. It ought to be, for it is superior to any other version I have heard. The compliment to myself in this comparison is very small indeed." The line that truly catches our attention in Stravinsky's quote is the one pertaining to Massachusetts law, forbidding any tampering with national property. National property as if, in fact... And now bear with me while I ask and answer a rhetorical question. What could be more American than to celebrate the 4th of July with a hot dog, a beer, and a stirring rendition of the Star-Spangled Banner? What could be more American? Well, certainly not a hot dog. That's because the slim sausage served on a roll that we call a hot dog was invented in Germany. For our information, in Frankfurt, pork sausages served up in buns, Frankfurters have been a local finger food since the 13th century. In Vienna, Wien in German, a pork and beef sausage eaten in a bun is called a Wiener or a Wiener. Nothing intrinsically American there. And there's nothing particularly American about downing a brewski either. In fact, beer is a universal drink. It is the most widely consumed alcoholic beverage, and after water and tea, the third most popular drink on the planet. In fact, the invention of beer very likely dates back to early Neolithic times, circa 9,500 BCE, which might explain why so many guys act like cavemen after drinking it. So much for hot dogs and beer being in any way inherently American. Well, at least we have the Star Spangled Banner, a national anthem we can be proud of even if its huge melodic range makes it well-nigh impossible to actually sing. This, of course, has not stopped folks from trying to sing it. Few tortures outside of shopping for bathing suits can be more exquisitely painful been listening to the strangled canine ululations of pop divas howling through the Star-Spangled Banner before sporting events. But musically, an American treasure, American national property, the Star-Spangled Banner is not. Yes, yes, its words are American enough. They come from a poem entitled Defense of Fort McHenry written in 1814 by a 35-year-old lawyer named Francis Scott Key after he witnessed the fort's bombardment by the British Royal Navy. But as for its music, the Star-Spangled Banner is as American as Spotted Dick, which is to say that it is not American at all, but rather 100% English, as in England, as in the same fine folks who bombarded Fort McHenry in the first place. Contrafacta. The Star Spangled Banner is a contrafactum, a song in which a pre-existing melody is fitted out with new words. The beauty of a contrafactum is that it is instantly learnable because it employs music we presumably already know. And while contrafacta, the plural of contrafactum, were more common in a pre-electronic, print-dominated age, we are still surrounded with them. Heck, Alan Sherman and Weird Al Yankovic made their careers creating and performing Contrafacta. The pre-existing pop tune on which the Star-Spangled Banner is based is an English song in praise of wine entitled The Anacreontic Song. It is also known by its insipid, or first words, as... To Anacreon in Heaven. The music was written by a teenager named John Stafford Smith in the mid 1760s as the official song of the Anacreontic Society, a London based gentleman's club for amateur musicians. The first verse, with words written by an amateur poet named Ralph Tomlinson, goes like this Quote, to Anacreon, in heaven, where he sat in full glee. A few sons of harmony sent a petition that he, their inspirer and patron, would be, when this answer arrived from the jolly old Grecian, voice, fiddle, and flute, no longer be mute. I'll lend you my name and inspire you to boot, and besides I'll instruct you, like me, to entwine the myrtles of Venus with Bacchus's vine. And besides, I'll instruct you, like me, to entwine the myrtle of Venus with Bacchus's vine." Unquote. Ha. Our suggestion to the poet Ralph Tomlinson, no more poetry. Just stop. A performance of the entire blessed song with all six verses and a chorus, which is not part of the Star-Spangled Banner, is linked. The popularity of the Anacreontic song quickly spread beyond the confines of the Anacreontic society clubhouse. Various new lyrics were appended to it, including several patriotic versions in the brand new United States of America. The most popular of the pre-Francis Scott Key versions was one entitled Adams and Liberty, with words written by the Bostonian Robert Treat Payne Jr. in 1798. So much for the Star-Spangled Banner being inherently, intrinsically, American. Which should make us wonder why this not at all singable song was declared the official national anthem over its patriotic rivals, Columbia the Gem of the Ocean, and My Country Tis of Thee, each of which had been considered a de facto national anthem for much of the 19th and early 20th centuries. The answer is that both Columbia, the Gem of the Ocean, and My Country, Tis of Thee are contrafacta as well. Contrafacta based not on drinking songs, but on important English patriotic anthems. Columbia, the Gem of the Ocean. Its American words written in 1843 by David T. Shaw is based on an English patriotic song entitled Britannia, the Pride of the Ocean. And as we all should know, My Country Tis of Thee, with its 13 verses of words written by Samuel Francis Smith in 1831, is based on the English national anthem itself, God Save the Queen or King, depending. Personally, personally, I take comfort in the international origins of so very many so-called American traditions. We are reminded that ours is a melting pot culture and that despite the attitude of the Boston police in 1944, diversity, inclusivity, and tolerance are presumably the nation's greatest strengths. So pass them dogs, load them up with kraut, which is German, and mustard, which was invented by the ancient Romans, get a side of fries, which are of French-slash-Belgian origin, pop a dos equis, from Monterey, Mexico, and finish your meal off with some apple pie, which originated in either France, the Netherlands, or the Ottoman Empire. Take your pick. Finally, sing the Star-Spangled Banner, and know that altogether it doesn't get any more American than this. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.